0: Becoming an over-the-road trucker for an alcoholic seems an odd choice. You know, the reality of it is I I was sitting in my apartment one night. I had my dad's gun. While you're inside watching TV, your addiction is outside doing push-ups. Put a few beers in me, walk in, and uh, I
1: could be whoever I wanted. I'm Anthony.
2: And I'm Tyson.
1: We're Recovering Addicts.
2: This is a podcast about journeys from the darkness of addiction
1: to the sunlight of sobriety.
0: Uh, my main addiction was alcohol. Later on, it became kind of a mental addiction to, to get off the alcohol, to go with the uh, the Ativan, Librium, Valium, things that would take the edge off how I was feeling after drinking so much that you just physically, you know, falling apart. A lot of it for me, the darkness, it's kind of, it's somewhat questionable at times what got me there. I used to pinpoint and blame a lot of things. And uh, it's kind of funny when I look back at it now, kind of how ridiculous those those motives were, so to speak, to, uh, to drinking. For me, it was isolation. You know, when I was growing up, it was a big thing for me, just kind of feeling lost all the time, you know. Had a good upbringing, a good life, but my parents, we moved around a lot. They both worked a lot. They fought a lot. When I was younger, my dad drank a lot. Just a lot of personal insecurity, you know, being uprooted every year and being moved to a new school and, you know, trying to fit in and and figure it out. you just get to the point where you don't really know who you are. And all of that kind of led me to drinking. Once I was drinking, I found out I could pretty much be whoever I wanted. And I could build a character, you know, a character that I could just shape and mold and fit into situations and not have to figure out who I was. I could just be whatever worked for that night or that weekend.
1: Do you think that you drink... To hide or drink, maybe to expose yourself. Initially, it was to come out of
0: isolation. I mean, it took it took all the walls down. It took all the insecurity out. Put a few beers in me and on, on the life of the party, I could walk up and talk to anyone. All the insecurity just absolutely drained out of me. I was, uh, you know, I could hold my head up high. I was proud. I thought I was good looking, and I could walk up to any girl I wanted to talk to. Um, I could make friends, and none of that liquid courage you know, existed before I, I threw a few beers back. And that started early. That was, uh, God, freshman year in high school. It only took one night of, of drinking and party, and the next thing you know, I'm like, okay. It was kind of my key to open a door that I had never really knew how to how do you open it. How do you walk through that confidently? Put a few beers in me, walk in. I could be whoever I wanted because I absolutely had no idea who I was
1: when did the drinking start to get serious where it it kind of it you peeled away the the fun layer and it turned into the ugliness
0: you know it's kind of funny i always i joke around i tell people now it's kind of like i thought i was the master architect of my life and i had no idea that i was really becoming a demolition expert um cuz i i could build my life up into everything i wanted be it a relationship a job uh the place i lived it didn't matter but it was almost like it plateaued, and when it plateaued and things were good, is when you know I just I pushed the plunger and blew it up, and for me that went on several times before I realized that I had a problem. And I used to like to look back and say, well, it was because of you know this relationship or this job or when my parents passed away, and you know the reality of it is I, I was sitting in my apartment one night. I had my dad's gun. Probably the darkest night I've had you know, outside of their passing, it actually occurred to me, like, I don't really have to do this anymore if I don't want to. It was empowering and terrifying at the same time. Empowering? Empowering knowing that I had the choice of whether I wanted to stay or to go. But with that being said, you know, a lot of what I felt in my addiction is a lot of cowardice. And the depression set in. And when the depression set in, then the drinking really became a way, there were a lot of nights where you just, you know, I would get so inebriated. It was like, you know, I'm just kind of hoping I don't wake up tomorrow. It was, It's kind of hard to wrap my mind around it now. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what my purpose is in this world. Why am I still here? It's not fun anymore. But yeah, when you really look at it with a clear head. It's ugly. It's terrifying. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, th- those types of things would come through and they wouldn't last for long, but when they last, when they would hit the way to kind of push those aside, just like anything with a relationship or an argument with a family member or friend was to drink more. So that became a solution.
1: No, I, I totally get it. Cause the way for me, my drinking started socially and fun and, and bright. And then over the course of my drinking, and by that I just mean over the course of the years, it became I'd have to start with no one around just so I can get drunk enough for the night, so I can justify doing cocaine, and there's a whole bunch of other crap in there. That, but in, in it ultimately, then it would after after hours would end and drink and drink and drink all night, so, and then it end by myself again. So for you, were you? Did, how did that flow go for you? Did you do most of your drinking at the at the beginning of your drinking? life? Did you begin just purely social and then it, it turned ugly and went solo? I mean, what, tell us a little bit about that. because that's
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the very first drink I ever had, I mean, I remember the night, I remember my friends at the time. I remember where I was at. I remember how I felt. It made me feel amazing. And from that moment on, it was always a good time. It was on the weekends and it wasn't consistent. That was the thing that, that I struggle with a lot now is it, it, it slowly ramped itself up where it was socially based. It was having a great time. It was going out on the weekends. Um, never really had the inclination to sit at home and drink by myself. Really 100% socially based for a long time. And I enjoyed the hell out of it. I mean, I have enough stories where I should actually write a book with all the, the ridiculous things that, that took place with me and my friends, <laughs> you know, out there tearing it up. And, and there were so many great times. It was fun. It wasn't dark at that time. It wasn't crazy and, and, and quote unquote dangerous. It was just a really good time. That went on for a long time. And I think as I started to get a little bit older, you know, the responsibilities build up. You, you meet someone, you start to build a life with them. That partying angle has to kind of tone down, especially if you're with somebody who's not on the same wavelength as you are with it. Went through a couple of serious relationships where, quite honestly, they ended because. They couldn't hang with what I wanted and the lifestyle that I was living. And it's funny because at the time you you just shrug it off like, ah, not a big deal. I mean, for a long time, it was a great time. I can tell you that really for me, the uh, kind of the moment where you can kind of pinpoint stepping off the cliff of whatever you would call controlled drinking or social drinking and having a good time and using it to kind of mask the reality of what was going on in the situation is when my dad got sick. My dad was my best friend. We were close my whole life. And early, my early 20s, it just, our relationship kind of flipped and he became my best friend. You know, he was still my dad, but we were really tight. He got sick. You know, he had cancer and they said, yeah, we're going to go ahead. We're going to do all the different treatments. You're going to, you're going to be fine. And within 11 months, he was gone. I lost the relationship I was in. I moved back home. I took care of him, found myself when I wanted to escape that situation, I would go to the bar, and I would go by myself. And then I started making friends at you know the local bars to hang out with. It was kind of this really dark, systematic way of I'd get up in the morning, shake off the hangover, go to work, come home from work, check on him, see how my mom's doing, get everyone settled in, and then go to the bar instead of facing what was going on, just drown myself in drink until I'd figure out how to get home or you know drive home and and kind of rinse and repeat every day. And that went on for 11 months. And then shortly after my dad passed away, we found out my mom was terminal. The train just kept rolling after that. It was, I I just kind of looked around. I thought, you got to be kidding me. And it was just kind of a self-soothing mentality. It, It just get up and work, go home and take care of things, drink yourself to sleep. And that's really when it got dark. And then the funny thing is after they passed away, we get rid of the house. I get my own place again. I'm out there in the world. I've got a good job. Everything is kind of going my way. And it didn't. It lightened up and there weren't, there weren't as many dark moments. It, all it took though was one serious relationship where things were, were tight. We were pregnant. I thought things were going to really start to turn around. My life was going to actually start, to, start to, to grow into something I always wanted, which is you know a wife and kids and, and a family that just was dismantled within days and I just sat there and and I immediately went to drink right after that. And I put myself in such a hole that physically, I just never realized the toll it could take on you. That's really the tipping point. That's where it's the first time I went to the ER and had to tell them what was going on. So yeah, you know, for me, it was a lot of fun for a lot of years. And then, uh, It just took some serious kind of adult level things to happen in life. And I was absolutely unprepared for it mentally, spiritually, maturity wise. You know, I I didn't realize how immature I was. You know, at 35, I think I'm walking around and I've got the world in my hands and I had no idea I was still just a little kid.
1: From a drinking perspective, can you share some details about how much you drank to land in the ER? Because it seems like a little bit of defiant drinking gets in the way too, socially speaking. And what I mean is, it, it sounds like it's more of a defiance. Like you can't tell me what to do or what not to do. I'll do what I want. And with your parents, it sounds like you were drinking to kind of hide the pain or, or, or get through the pain. And I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm, I'm only trying to clarify that. So that said, the ER moment, like how much drinking would we talk about here that landed you there? And what was that like?
0: Oh, it, <laughs> I called it my house of horrors. You know, if if it got to the point where I no longer was interested in actually taking the bags of garbage out, it, it would just kind of pile up. I would go to the liquor store and bring home 36 packs of Milwaukee's Best Light bottle of vodka. And it, it would just, it would roll. And it would literally, until I passed out, get up, kind of look around. Now I'm not hungry. Uh, maybe have some water, throw down some ibuprofen and really checking the clock back to the liquor store. And it got to the point where I was literally having to kind of strategically figure out which liquor store I could go to because, you know, I look like a complete wreck. I'm not taking care of my life, my lifestyle, me. And so I'm kind of trying to sprinkle it around to figure out where to go, what time they open, kind of that mentality. You know, when I went to the ER, I was in the hospital for 11 days. They detoxed me. They cleaned me up. I got out into the world and I realized when they shot me with the Dilaudid, and I left, and, it, and they detoxed me, and I got out. I was feeling like a million dollars, and I'm like, "Yep, this is good. I'm going to handle this, and I can drink again." And the weird part about that is, I found myself in this crazy cycle of go to the ERs, and just like the liquor stores, I would pick the ERs to bounce between because they would normally shoot you with Dilaudid if you, you know, said you weren't feeling well. They'd give you Adderall, a prescription, a prescription of Valium, maybe Librium, and it became this kind of cycle. I would take time off, it would get really dark, I would drink like crazy. And then, hey, I got a detox and I go to the detox and take four days off of work and get cleaned up and come out and pretty much go right back into the drinking. And that cycle, you know, between the detox, uh, the drugs and, you know, rehab, they came, they became like the three pillars of my life. And then, you know, obviously to hide it all that fourth pillar becomes lying and isolating. So that the world doesn't really know what you're doing. So the sheer amount of alcohol—I mean—I walked in the yard ER one night, completely what I thought was sober. Talked to everyone, had you know, I told them I wasn't feeling well. They took my blood, and the guy came, the doctor walked in, and said, "I'm not even sure how you're awake right now. Your blood alcohol is .39." I said, "I don't know. I'm just not feeling well. I have a stomach ache. That was the night they admitted me. It, it, it's shocking the sheer amount of alcohol you can drink. I would eat every four or five days, just to take the edge off.
1: You're living by yourself, you're in an apartment, you would just stock up, leaving Las Vegas style with X amount of alcohol, whatever that looks like for you, just drink with a mission and the mission was to end up in the ER to get the lot. In.
0: Yes. Without question, I would drink and uh, you know, like I said, the daily was 36 beers, it would be a bottle of vodka and then I would shake it up. It might be a bottle of Jaeger, it might be a bottle of whiskey. If I knew I was going to, if I started feeling a little weak and a little around the edges, I might pick up. You know, instead of one thirty six pack it might be two or three. The fridge was filled with beer. Uh, I would have two to three bottles of alcohol on the countertop at any time. And when it got to the point where the physical pain of it became so great, I would muster up the best I had in myself, throw on a pair of shoes, take myself to the ER, explain that I had a stomach ache, I wasn't feeling well, whatever the case may be. And those drugs and that care and that uh, that kind of mentality of, They're not going to just spin you back out of there. They're going to keep you. And that that became very comforting because, you know, it's funny about isolation is a lot of the times all my binge drinking started with the fact that I was lonely. And the more I drank, the more I binge drank, the lonelier I became and the isolation became greater. And whether that was at my home in a house of horrors that I love to call my apartments in the past, if I had lost my apartment, I was staying with a friend, I would simply leave and and go grab a a weekly rate at a a rundown motel and, and do it there. And I would take it to the level where the the pain would be so great that I would literally try to muster up the best I could if I didn't call an ambulance and get in the car, go to the ER, throw myself on their mercy. They would figure out, okay, are we going to keep them and detox them? Can we send them somewhere else? You know, the funny part about that is you start to realize after I came out of some of that dark depression, but I wasn't ready to throw in the towel on drinking. It became a system. And then I rebuilt a part of my life. I got a job again because eventually you do run out of money. And I started working. I started to be a functioning drunk for the best way to say it. But I figured that I could always push it to that edge. And I I always kind of had an idea, like if I keep drinking, I'm going to have a problem. But I also know that I can hit the ER. I can hit the local detox unit. I have the insurance. And it became this just cycle game that I would play. Had no interest in dating. Had no interest really in friendships, relationships. It was just kind of a mindset of just became this 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 big wheel of of a life that I created. It was, it was simply it was get up, go to work, come home, drink, continue that. Then on the weekends, if I pushed it too far, simply be a call to the boss. Hey, I'm going to use some vacation time. Go check myself in a detox. Tell them for the 15th time that, yeah, I know, I know I have a problem, but, um, you know, it's going to be okay this
1: time. What does detox look like in the ER or in the hospital? Do they just uh, tap you with IVs and then just flush you out? I mean, what, what, what are they doing for you? They'll always hit you in the beginning. They, they hit you with Dilaudid because you're in pain, and that's a
0: wonderful feeling. They'll bring you in, they put fluids on you, they figure out where your blood levels are. And normally I would take myself to where the vitamin deficiencies were there. Um, They'd have to give you a, you know, give me a banana bag, multiple IVs to get my system stabilized. And at that point they keep you and then they start to feed you either an Ativan or a Librium or Valium. And that starts to take all those negative effects of the alcohol away from your system and you start to feel better. If the ER turned and, and burned me, which, you know, they would bring me in and, and feed you Benadryl and tell you to go home and sober up. Well, then I'd call a detox unit. The detox unit, you you grab a bag and you check in like any movie you might see about rehab. And you you check yourself in, they go through the bag, they throw you in scrubs or you're in a pair of sweatpants and a t shirt, throw on some flip flops. They start to feed you Librium or Adivan. They hit you with big doses in the beginning and eventually wean you down over anywhere from three to six days. They send you on your way and then you're back out the door.
1: How many times did you? Admit yourself to clinics, ERs, detox units.
0: Yeah, the ER visits uh, close to 25 detox units. I know I've been to five of them. Of the five, the one I love the most, uh, I could turn and burn there pretty much every other week if I wanted to. Detox stays uh, about a dozen. And then three stints in rehab. So,
1: What, uh, wow. Um Forgive me, I try not to react sometimes. I apologize. Okay. So, obviously, you're searching to sort out the addiction, the alcoholism, and the addiction to the drugs that they're giving you to kind of numb the pain. But I, you know, I got to tell you, I am not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but it looks like you're, you're seeking being nurtured also. Um, there's a, a bit of the caretaking component of that to always go to people that you know will take care of you, make you feel better, even if it's only for a few days. Um, and I'm completely winging that. I'm just saying that, you know, I felt the same way many times. You know, it, it always feels good to have somebody call and check up on you or, or make sure you're doing okay. So I get that. I mean, um, unfortunately for addicts, a lot of you hide, 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 hide. And then when you do pop your head up, it's always nice to get a little comforting call, text, email, hug, pop in. It serves its purpose for the time being. And then at least I would always go right back to what I was doing. I didn't. I used it just to kind of almost feel good for a moment. And then so, okay, you've you've tried to push over. I'm mean, gonna Jerry Seinfeld said this on his show. We've got to try to push over the soda machine a few times to get it rocking, and then it goes over. So you go through all those detoxes, all those ER visits, all of those rehabs. What finally started to stick or or lead you from the darkness of pretty aggressive addiction into the sunlight? Like what what took? I I don't wanna lead. You. know. But it no. seems like you worked hard on figuring out the source, and not just working on the alcoholism and the drug addiction, but the source or the problem, the issues mentally, if I could say that, that you were dealing with. You
0: know, when I looked back at it, what really got me over the hump was kind of pushing my family and friends to that last point to where they didn't really want to see me; they weren't going to help me anymore. Um, it's very difficult to stay a functioning addict, an alcoholic, when nobody's there to help you on the downside. It kind of forced me into a small, brief period of sobriety. And then I made the conscious decision to, to kind of try something completely different, which was becoming an over-the-road truck driver. Because knowing the restrictions, it was easy. I could live in my truck. I could travel the country. I wouldn't be, quote-unquote, tempted by the alcohol. I did that for two years. It was great, but it was simply ignoring the problem. And for me, what I realized on the road is that time is really fleeting. And I would come home and I would see so many things going on at home. And I thought to myself, you know, time is really flying out here. Of all the jobs, of all the relationships, the, the friendships, the money, all the things you lose in addiction, the thing that really struck it for me and, and, and really hit home was time the sheer amount of time that I lost, it, it, it's astronomical. You know, when you when you really sit back and look at it, I have spent the better part of 12 years doing this. And, and if I go forward 12 years, I'm at almost six. And those types of things really start to set in with me. And I started looking at it, and I started thinking to myself, I, I mean, I got off the road. I got an apartment. I took a job. I got promoted at work. I had everything perfect. And all it took was one weekend. All it took was one bad date. That insecurity come roaring back. And the next thing you know, I'm right back in the bottle. I'm, I'm, you know, I built this wonderful life and I'm getting ready to destroy it again. I literally sat on my couch when I kind of dumbfounded of how the hell I got myself in a small seven day period back to this point. And I started making some phone calls and it was the first time in my life where I said, I really need to figure this out. And I, I was able to contact the facility in California. I was on a plane the next day and I went and I committed for the first time to figure out why. And they helped me do that. And I didn't stay for nine days or 21 days. I went out there for over three months, completely engaged myself to it, started to realize that, that the problem had started way before I thought it did. The insecurity, all the things you think about yourself as a kid growing up and the challenges you face. and you just got to kind of look at it. And I hate to say it, but you kind of got to say, fuck it and chuck it. Um, I'm here now. I'm better for it. I'm uh, I'm just, you know, a good person. In fact, better. And I'm a, I'm a better friend. I'm a better uncle, brother, significant other when I'm not trying to mask my insecurity. And for me, the sunlight really came in the form of, of a wonderful conversation I had with a gentleman I met out there. And, and it was so similar our stories, and I had seen where his life had come, you know, I would try to pull away from it. And he would catch me in my bullshit and just look right at me and go, I know you're trying to leave, but you can't, you know, he just kind of kept pulling me in and kind of just turning me around to face myself in the mirror and say, you got to figure this out, or you're going to lose everything. Uh, It's a scary, terrifying step. But I thought, you know what, it doesn't work my way. Why the hell not? I'll try something different.
1: So uh, I have a couple questions about that, but I, I, do, have, I do have to point out, and, and I'm not trying to make light of anything, but uh, becoming an over-the-road trucker for an alcoholic seems an odd choice. I would imagine that many <laughs> listeners might kind of shake their head a little bit, but I, just to put a box around a that for point. you uh, politely, yeah. um, I think that you're, you, just to be clear, you did that so that you forced yourself into sobriety, like you didn't give yourself a choice because the risk was too great, not just because of, you know, that was your job, but people would absolutely get killed Um, oh god forbid if if you even had a drink so i get why you did it but i have to admit it'd be like a saying you know i'm gonna i'm gonna be i'm gonna be sober but i'm gonna pick between truck driver over the road truck driver or pilot like Like, they just seem like odd choices for for people but i get why you did it because it forces you into as an addict for me it what getting up in the morning and always getting up early. Like that was kind of my thing. Like no matter how late I stayed up, I always forced myself to try to get up at a particular time. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a little bit different, but it's the same kind of concept where you push yourself or put yourself in a box thinking that if you do this, everything will be okay. So you're now in California, you're at this center, you're there for the duration, but again, you're trying to bucket or leave before, before, you solve or unearth the issues, but it sounds like you figured it out. I mean, so you don't have to tell us specifically, but um, I'm curious, what finally was, what clicked and became your why?
0: Clicking point to me, you know, I'm in that center. I'm thinking about leaving this gentleman who has become pretty close to him. He's become my life coach in a lot of ways. We sat down and we started talking about the, the medical side of addiction. We watched, you know, he showed me these programs. We We kind of talked about how it physically affects the body. There's a tipping point that science can't really quite figure out, but we know it's there. You know, from a scientific factual position, it's what started making sense to me. And I don't want to say it gave me a pass, but when I started looking at it and I started to understand the science of addiction, it because honestly for me, the AA and the moral uh, all the other stuff they say in the big book, it works for a lot of people. It didn't really connect with me. Um, but when I start to look at it and I, it, it, it's not an excuse, but when you look at it and start to go, okay, I've crossed the line. This is what addiction does. This is what they're finding out about it glammed onto that. And I really dug into the science of it. It gave me hope to look at it in, 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 and I am very spiritual in a lot of ways, but I spent a lot of dark nights of the soul asking God for help, begging for all these things, and it never really worked. And it, of course, it wouldn't. We've got to do this for ourselves. But when I started to dig into the science of how alcohol changes you, the biology of it, addiction, the, uh, the disease model, that's what really opened my eyes to look at it. And, I, and it became almost kind of a second addiction where I really wanted to start looking at it and figuring out why. Um, I know mentally why I picked up and why I enjoyed it. But when I stopped having fun and I kept using, I wanted to understand that better. For me, that was really the light is to understand the non-social part of it, the the, the stigmas that come with recovering addicts and alcoholics to to get away from that mentality and kind of dig a little bit deeper into the. Uh, physical nature of addiction is what helped open my eyes, really what kind of cemented my new foundation of sobriety.
1: So you get, let's say you get triggered, whatever that trigger is, where's your safe place? Because for me, like if I get triggered uh, at first, it took me a while to be, I had to be in my safe place for a long time to kind of get through the, the rough patch once I was triggered and without, so I didn't have a drink or didn't do a line or have a cigarette or whatever it was. So, and it took a while, and now I'm at a point, thankfully. Um, and it's always a fight; you got to continue fighting. But I can get into my happy place quickly, and, and it, it can pass because I, I have, like, just like you've, I trained myself to be an addict. I've now trained myself. You're always training yourself to be sober. So I, my routines just flip. I embrace the sobriety piece. Tyson calls it sober momentum. I truly think that that's a wonderful concept because I can go there. And I now know that my re- this is my reaction and this is what I do to get through it in a good way. For you, I'm curious because of it, You're, a, a, I'm going to call it probably what it isn't, but a science based sobriety. Um, I have to admit, I wasn't expecting that. I thought it was going to be something that you unearthed, a tragic memory or uh, some tragic experiences around the death of your parents or something, and you came to terms with that in a different way, which... Kind of swung the pendulum towards sobriety, and now you can keep it there. But being science based, I have to admit I'm a little confused. I'm I'm curious to learn a little bit about that, and maybe that's a different segment. How do you find your happy place in a scientifically based sobriety? And I don't I mean that because I'm intrigued. Uh, how does that work?
0: Well, and, and and I don't I don't rely simply on the science of it. The science helps me understand kind of what's happening, you know, physically with me. I've always had a good spiritual grounding. I I believe in in God in my own way. I've got closeness with friends and family, but the science is what I wanted to to dig into a little bit more of um, because I was sad and I was depressed and didn't drink. There were times when I was completely happy and my life was perfect and I was destroying it. So I I wanted to understand a better, have a better understanding of what the science of addiction is. In other words, how does it react? Um, What it does to our GABA receptors, how it, over time destroys it. how we're constantly chasing that high because we're, we're, we're changing our brains to a point where we've got a, we're drinking more and more and more because we're simply not getting the high that we once got. Mm-hmm. Um, that helped me understand the binging because I could sit and drink to the point where I, I know I'm not sober, my blood alcohol is astronomical, but I'm completely functional. And that blew me for a loop. I wasn't passed out on the floor Um, I was walking around cleaning my apartment. Those types of things are, are kind of what drew me. So when you talk about, you know, when I get a trigger now, I have a network of people I talk to. I have, you know, my moments where I have to look at it and say, okay, you know what, I'm giving it up to God at this moment because that's what's needed. But one of the things I found too is that in my 12 years of on and off addiction is the sheer fact that I emptied my life, and I mean No gym, no extracurricular activities. When God, for a dating profile, when they say, what are your hobbies? And I'd sit there and look at it like, I don't fucking know. I don't have any. I don't do anything but work. I dove into just about anything I could think of. Um, I always want to learn to play some musical instrument. I'm learning guitar. I'm big into competition shooting now. I actually ride my mountain bike. I actually go to the gym every I'm actually socially active. I put myself into uncomfortable positions completely dead sober and walk in exactly how I am and see how they unfold and it doesn't always work in my favor there are times it's scary there are times when um you know with this this latest uh, situation with COVID-19 I mean there could be a day where everyone's using hand sanitizer and it hits me like a bad bottle bottle of vodka and I got to stop myself for a minute and really think and I oh, always... mean like
1: the the smell of a hand sanitizer yeah I
0: like it okay Absolutely, that smell—the hand sanitizer just kind of looks like a, a bottom shelf bottle, of, or smells like the bottom shelf of a, a you know brand of vodka.
1: You know what? You know what? One of the things for me—that's weird that you say that because for me, I think the nose is an important layer of addiction because it—you have certain smells and things remind you of certain things, and the one for me because of cocaine is gasoline. Like not a not a big tight whiff of gas, but when you're pumping gas and you get that kind of a that that scent of gasoline. It reminds me of the after effect of, a, of some blow. I I don't know why, but I'm good now, but it mentally takes me places. It does. And it, it makes me think of cocaine and it not so much anymore. But at first it was a real big trigger for me and I had to be careful. Mm-hmm. Not I, to mention, I knew gas, I would go and do, you know, I'd find myself in a bathroom at a gas station and I would pick the gas stations that I went to because I knew that they had a single hole bathroom with a door lock that I could, you know rip a, a shit ton of blow and do like five keys of blow there. <laughs> right. So you know, that was, that was the other part of it, honestly. So, um, no, but I, I get it, man. I mean, it's, you know, so I, you know, I know you Roland and I know that you used to wake up and you know, you were always the first guy to crack a fucking beer. The first is yep. as, be as soon as your fucking feet hit the floor, man. Yep. In fact, I even saw you laying in bed with the lights out and everyone asleep, on you know, or strewed about the floor, or what the hell ever, reach over your head, grab the beer, slam it, and crush it, and put the beer can down. Yes, sir. So, like those things, <laughs> <laughs> and like from a drinking perspective, are you waking up shaking and and are you dealing with the DTS at all or or, or no? What's that
0: like? Luckily for me, and and you know, I, I think it's a collection of things that help us. Uh, line of sobriety because I've done it before and I've shit the bed on it. For me, you know, when I was going through that, because I physically got to the point where they had to, uh, at one point they put me under for three days because I was that bad. You know, and alcohol is is one of those withdrawals that can physically kill you. And so the DTs and things, luckily for me, didn't take. Um, I don't have any motor skills. I don't have any damage. I always joke around that I'm the healthiest addict I know. You know, the worst thing that happens to me is the doctor will yell at me about my vitamin D. And considering those stories of getting up in the morning and, you know, everyone wants an omelet and I want a 12-pack. You know, shit, I was late to my own wedding because I was drinking beers and watching the NFL draft. I mean, there's some funny stuff going on in the past. But um, <laughs> I told her not to get married on the day of the draft. She didn't listen. I was late. But the funny thing about it is... um <laughs> Jeez, yeah. Um, That's funny. but the funny part about it is, you know, when, when I look at it and like I said, there's no, I haven't crossed any finish line. No, I, I met, I, I met a gentleman and, uh, believe it or not, it was in Gurney, Illinois, but I went to a, uh, um kind of a faith-based, uh, recovery meeting. And I was talking to the gentleman and he was a great guy. and, And I really had a nice conversation. I started talking to another gentleman and I had mentioned his name and I said, you know, he's shaking. How long has he been sober? And the guy said, Oh, 34 years. And I said, why is he still shaking? And he said, that's pause when it stays. And for some reason that scared the hell out of me because the big fear I had coming off alcohol was always the reaction to my body. Because you cross a certain line and when you cross that line and you start going through hardcore alcohol trials, it is terrifying. I mean, you will you will do anything and everything you can to get booze in your system because everything starts to go sideways. And the shakes are terrible. Um, that terrified me because I, I remember a few times when I would come off the booze and my hands would shake for two, three weeks before it would calm down. And it was never enough to get me to stop. Don't get me wrong. Those side effects are terrifying but on the flip side i know it's very easy to fall back over the line because i also know that if those side effects if i if i throw my sobriety out the window tomorrow and go back to the old game while you're inside watching tv your addiction is outside doing push-ups and there's a lot of truth to that
1: oh that's fucking Um, great actually that's yeah
0: i mean it's outside doing push-ups working out just looking at you through the window like i'm ready
1: when you are i'm ready i'm ready. I'd that has to like that. get Tyson going. Like Tyson lives for that kind of stuff. Like that has to be right over the plate for you, Tyson.
2: <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's such a great metaphor. I mean, it it is always on yeah. you. I mean, I have to say, Roland, you have one of the I resonate so much with your your story, everything that you talked about, with just your patterns, your the cycle you talked about. You ever read a book like a and you're you're intending to just like highlight a few things. And then you end up realizing you're highlighting everything and the whole thing. And you're like, why am I even highlighting? That's basically what happened over here. I was taking notes on your thing. And I'm like, wow. One of the big ones that came up that I resonated with was you moved around a lot when you were a kid. So did I. And you said you were always trying to fit in and figure it out every year. Yeah. And I, thought, I think that's an interesting feeling. I, I felt that way too. I moved all the time growing up. Um. I actually thought that had something to do with, with my drinking too. I was, I was an alcohol guy. I was, I was pretty, I was, I was a big binger started pretty similar to you. Like everybody having a good time. And I I loved what you said also of uh, once you had a drink, you could be a character for the night. I actually used to do that. A lot of people know me as, as some of the characters that I used to play. I I loved being a character for the night. Um, (laughs) But What's so interesting is there was you said something about how you would always get to a point of having everything be really going well for you, right? And then you would somehow screw it up or like kind of like blow it up. I had that too. That was a huge pattern for me. I would get things going well and and then I would I would usually screw it up by like doing something obviously drunk, just like going out of my way to, to cause that. And you were, you were talking a lot about yourself and then self probably like kind of love, et cetera, and eventually found that the reason that I was blowing things up was because I unconsciously didn't believe that I deserved them. Do you, feel, do you feel like there was something kind of like unconscious in that sort of a sense that was causing you to blow things up once they started to go well?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I joke around and I call it that, you know, like I said, I was a master architect. I was articulate. I was always building stuff, not realizing that all I was doing was setting demolition charges because at some point right. I was going to push it, you know, and, and just flip the switch and blow it down. That drive to fit in, it's that drive to please people. You, you don't think of yourself first. You're... you're Consistently thinking about others, and I don't mean that in a positive way either. I mean you will you will drain your own batteries. You will you will basically destroy yourself in trying to provide them things they're not asking for to sh- to show them that that you have value when they're not seeking it.
2: Yes, that's so well put. I I mean for someone that that's describing like yeah, me, it, that is so
0: that's music it's to my ears. Literally offering your entire being to someone when all they're asking for is friendship or whatever it may be. Yeah. But you feel so there's such a need and you show them to prove to them that, that what you're saying, what you're doing, it, it, it is heartfelt. It's from the soul. It, it's, it's almost a never ending seeking of a kindred spirit
2: and they're <laughs> not seeking
0: that from you. And, and, and unfortunately it also leads, I know a lot of times with myself, it leads to times of frustration or I'd start to get upset because they didn't quite see what I was trying to provide them. And then I get almost defensive, I get angry. I would then you know, kind of reject them and maybe um, step away from them and go, well, you know what, forget it. And it's, it's all of this, it's funny. It's like the hamster wheel is going 100 miles an hour in my head. Meanwhile, the other person is sitting across eating a salad looking at you thinking everything is perfectly fine. But we're the ones that are just, everything is going through our head 100 miles an hour and it's
2: and it's only in your head. absolutely
0: and it's like this never-ending seeking of of worth and approval and how you how you can how you can hopefully fit in somewhere it's it's a and and the crazy part is is when you step out of addiction and you talk to people that have known you for years and they may not have known all that was going on in your head say simple things like it's i'm so glad to have you back or people you work with just you know it'll be random things that you don't realize how important you are you don't realize that that those times when you were just trying to be yourself as lost as you are self-worthless as you may feel those times when you're just being yourself are is the moments that other people have picked up and and almost request please bring that person back and you're looking at and going i'm not sure who that is i don't really like that person i don't know i don't know how to be that person that you love so much. You know what I mean? It, 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 doesn't fit. I I've been playing a character for so long. I, I don't, I don't know how to change out of the, the outfits anymore. I don't, I don't know how to, to drop the, the,
2: the gig. Yeah. So. I totally get that. Hmm. Totally get that, man. I was the, the king of the costume and I, I moved to another country and, and learned another language so I could hide out on a, in even more layers. Wow. Uh, That's great. So, yeah. yeah. I had to wear all kinds of masks. I knew
1: uh, a girl, I'm not going to say her name, but she didn't drink much because when she did drink, she turned in, her alter ego was her, her, I'm not going to say her real name, but her alter ego was Gertrude and she would get drunk (laughs) and she would literally be sitting there and she'd Uh have a a shot of Maker's Mark in front of her. And she's like, if I take this one, actually, if I take this, if I take this shot after she's had a couple in front of that, if I take this shot, I'm going to turn into Gertie. And, and then, and then it'd be funny. She would literally turn into this fucking person. It was like, and it, she would be Gertie. It only had, I mean, she barely drank, man. I mean, it was rare ever to, I think I've only seen, I think I've only met Gertie once or twice, maybe. Um, but long story short, I think a lot of people have that, that alcoholic alter ego that they're either bringing forth or hiding from one of the two. It's interesting. So, you know, just to maybe conceptually wrap things up, uh, Roland is, Like, I like to try to end on a sunshine note. I'm very proud that you have taken all the right steps and and dedicated yourself for three months in California. And I know it's a difficult question to answer. Do do you have like one nugget of advice to either one of three things? Help people take the first step towards the sunshine, stay in the sunshine, or get back on the path to sunshine. Have anything. And it doesn't have to be a long thing. It could just be something as simple as, for me, it was, you know, Embrace the ugly, you know, like you, you have to be okay with the skin you're in, uh, but really be fucking okay with it. Do you have anything like that? Like that you, like if when I'm struggling, I look at myself, if I'm in my car, I'm in my rear view mirror or whatever it is. I look at the finger that's jacked up and I look at myself and, and I, I, I own what's happening. I don't run from it anymore. Do you have anything like that, that, that you would bring or offer?
0: Tomorrow is coming. How are you going to start the day? It, legitimately, yeah. it's going to come. The nights, because we all know in the mornings, we don't like them. In the evenings is when we thrive. That sun is going to rise tomorrow. And when it rises, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to start your day? That works for me. I, I have that choice to start that day the way I want, the way I think. And I always err on the side of I'm going to get up every day, gaze out of that sun and go, what can I do today? And I walk out of the house.
1: Tyson and I hope most about people that listen to Dismantled Life is that the way is the way, and it's different for every single person. Everyone's way is their way, and you just that I'm hoping that this show just is the spark that gives people the hope to take that next step, to take the first step, to take the step back. Um, but I do have to say, I love the concept of you can you'll be in you will be inside relaxing in your addiction. Is outside doing push-ups trying to fuck you up. Fucking right. That's t-shirt worthy shit right there.
2: So that I really love that visual. I mean, it is so powerful because it, it is true. And I and I find it love yourself like your life depends on it helped me a lot. He had a he has a phrase, I don't he said I think he got it from somewhere too, but he said that pain is the price you pay for not being present. In a lot of ways, that's really what it is. The same thing with like your your you know, addiction, doing pushups outside waiting for it. It's like that moment that you're kind of not present, that you're not sort of conscious and, and taking, making yourself aware, doing your your daily practice, doing your your routines that those days when you get sort of, you get arrogant or even that moment, right? is like, it's so fascinating for me. I look back at some of like the craziest benders I've ever been on. Like it was like one little millisecond in time that I wasn't capable of sitting still or chilling or not blowing that first line or not, you know, taking those first drinks that ended in a, you know, couple week long
0: run. <laughs> yeah. And there, you know, honestly, it, it's, it's tough because there's times you look back at it and you romanticize it. I mean, you, you, you kind of look around. It's that yeah. never, that, that, that never ending why, why can't I go back? Why can't I do what I did then? Why, why, why? A question that will simply never be answered there. We just know that we can't. That's for um, sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I always so I liken it to the gambler's lie, uh, and what here let me let me let me put this out here is so any gambler only comes in with a big swinging dick talking shit when they win. They only tell you about the day that they won. They don't tell you about the 352 days that they did that they lost everything. And I say gambler specifically because you know you go to the casino ten times in a row, you come out 9.9 times a loser. You know meaning you lost your money. And then the one time that you win, you hang on that. And that one time that you break even or win 10 bucks, a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, whatever the hell it is, you tell everybody about it. And that's the energy that you use to go back to the casino. That's what brings you back is that fucking 10 bucks. That's the story you tell That's you buy drinks with it. And then in your head, you have that image that you keep of how great that moment was. You don't remember how ugly it was. Uh, losing the money and all that other pain and shit that came along with the losing part.
2: Yeah. You have to be guarded from it though. I think that's a really good point. You have to be guarded from the full truth to continue the the lie, right? Like, I mean, that's important. Yeah. It's selective memory. I mean, we, we remember those good moments, but we don't remember that
0: it took three days to feel better afterwards.
1: Addicts, me, it was easier to live the lie, avoid the pain, mm-hmm. seek the pleasure at all costs. And then it turns into that's all you can do. And then, and then all hell breaks loose and your life is fucking destroyed. Rick, I, I, I do wanna say, man, I am very proud of you. I love how hard you have worked to become and, and attain the sobriety that you have. You have been dedicated to it. You've gone and, and spent the three months and, and did the hard work and you put the fucking time in it and it's it's wonderful to have you back, my friend. I love you and I'm so, so grateful to have you back.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I love you too and I'm glad to be back.
1: Thank you for listening to the Dismantled Life Podcast, Episode 4. Please check us out at dismantled.life. You can find us and subscribe to us anywhere you find your podcasts. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, please email me at anthony at dismantled.life. Remember, if you need to find your local Alcoholics Anonymous chapter, please look them up at aa.org. And finally... Stay in the sunshine.